Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. The Democratic Party needs to not content itself with being uh, the party of the urban core. Whatever you want to say about Trump, and there's a lot to say, when he ran, one thing he did I will give him credit for is he looked at these people in blue-collar small towns and he said, you know what, your lives are important. Your problems exist, and I'm going to help them. Now, he hasn't helped them, and he's full of it, and he doesn't care about them, but at least he acknowledged them. And we in the Democratic Party do not acknowledge them way too often. I don't think it's out of maliciousness. I just don't think there are very many Democrats who know about places like this. I mean, there are not too many shared Browns. And so you don't hear voices like mine. When's the last time you heard outside of James Carville, a Southern twang representing the Democratic Party? And I'm living proof that if you speak to folks, they will listen because no one's going to mistake me for <laughs> you know, like like someone, um, you know, who I mean, maybe they would like. I'd appreciate you know it if someone You have you come off as someone who genuinely cares, and most importantly, you don't come off as someone who thinks they're better. A lot of this is in places like Kentucky. We are worried that you and the rest of the country look down at us. We are worried that you think we're stupid, that you think we don't know how to do anything. And when someone talks to us like that, we turn them off. They're done. Forget it. I am thrilled to welcome to Yang Speaks. Uh, someone who's a force of media nature in his own right, Matt Jones, the founder of Kentucky Sports Radio, New York Times bestselling author of the book Mitch Please about Mitch McConnell and his native Kentucky, uh, graduate of Duke University and Transylvania University, which I I, I confess I did have to look up. <laughs> well, welcome. I went to, to law school at Duke. I, I have to take up for my Transylvania, oldest university west of the Allegheny Mountains, but I went to law school at Duke. I have to say, Matt, you are living the dream of so many law school graduates I know in that you went to law school and now you are a sports radio host talking about politics uh, and things that people care about. You're hugely popular in Kentucky. And as someone who graduated from law school uh, I, there are so many lawyers that wish they had your gig. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I actually, I never thought I would do sports. And it just kind of came about in the mid-2000s when sort of blogs were becoming a big thing, which there's a lot of people listening to your podcast who don't even know what blogs are because people don't use them anymore. But in the mid-2000s, that was a real thing. And I started a Kentucky blog and it kind of, it was good timing and it kind of took off. Uh, and I got to get out of the legal profession, which anybody who's in the law, you get really excited to do it. And then you try your best to get out of it as quickly as possible. And that that happened for me. And I got to pursue something I really loved. Uh, but then sort of found my way back to doing political stuff in the last few years. So it's been a weird career, all kind of bouncing back and forth. We had a good laugh where I'm wearing a T-shirt uh, for you and you're wearing a button down for me. Uh... You know, we're both just being considerate. I, Andrew, I wear a hoodie every day. Like, I have, like, 75 hoodies from 75 sports teams. And today on the radio I talked about, I'm going on the Andrew Yang podcast. I think I'm going to have to put a dress shirt on for, like, the first time in a year and a half. And then I come out here and you're wearing a T-shirt. Yeah. Um, well, I appreciate you looking out for me because we have a very buttoned-up crowd uh, here in the Yang Yang and Yang Speaks. Like, they definitely would have um, appreciated the extra effort uh, on your part. Yeah, I'm I'm – 
thrilled to talk to you about uh, what your perspective is on what the heck we are doing wrong in places like Kentucky. Uh, so right now you have Mitch McConnell, uh, in some quarters, a deeply unpopular man. <laughs> well, not just in some quarters, deeply unpopular in Kentucky. And I think that's misunderstood nationally, but definitely deeply unpopular, not just you know, in big cities or in the Democratic Party, but in his state, he is extremely disliked. Well, so let's dig into this because this is, in a very, is a very important misconception that a lot of people might have. So I'm just going to speak for myself outside looking in. Uh, Mitch McConnell seems like a, a very uh, DC-oriented guy. He's been there forever. Uh, he, he, he seems eminently unlikable. Uh, and... The impression is that somehow he has like this uh, mind control over the people of Kentucky, <laughs> where, 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 where like like everyone everyone's like, oh, Mitch, he's like somehow an institution. That's what it looks like from the outside looking in, where you you think uh, that like, of course, I find him very unlikable, but like you just said that that um, apparently that's not unique to people outside of Kentucky. Yeah, one of the things I always get very frustrated about when I talk to people from outside of Kentucky is they act like, and especially, to be honest with you, Democrats, our side, they act like we're a bunch of idiots, a bunch of dupes who don't understand how bad Mitch McConnell is and, gosh, these stupid people in Kentucky. That's not what it is. I mean, for my book, I went to every county in Kentucky. We have 120, which is too many, but we have 120. And I went to every one, and finding a true Mitch McConnell supporter is almost impossible. Nobody likes the guy, and nobody likes him for the exact reason you said. They don't feel like he cares about Kentucky. They feel like he's a D.C. person. But here's the problem. We've never, as Democrats, given them somebody who people believe cares more than Mitch. In Kentucky, and I think in a lot of red states, if you have a run-of-the-mill Republican and a run-of-the-mill Democrat, people are going to vote for the Republican. They just are. So you have to do something different, and you have to say, I am different than them in a way that connects. And the problem for the Democratic Party, in my opinion, in middle America especially, is that we connect culturally, but we don't connect economically. And in places where the culture is not the same as a lot of the mainstream parts of the Democratic Party, they just have no connection to the Democratic Party. So we have stopped talking about blue collar issues or we don't do it enough. And that is how you used to win in Kentucky. Democrats used to run this state forever. And they talked about blue collar. This is a working class state. This used to be a big union state. And when does the last time you've heard a Democrat talk about unions? I mean, they don't talk about unions. They don't ever. And they, coal mining unions were huge here. Steel unions. Like, they, you know, this was a union place and people just don't ever bring it up. And thus, since the culture wars become a lot of national politics, it hurts in places like here. And that is why Mitch McConnell, who is deeply unliked, who workers believe doesn't care about them at all, when it becomes a culture war battle, they end up choosing his side. Your point about how Democrats have lost on the economic messaging uh, and for blue collar workers, union households, I experienced the same thing on the trail. And one of the things that they're seeing right now between Joe and Trump is that a lot of the union leaders are endorsing Joe and Kamala because you still have like a democratic relationship there. But a lot of the rank and file members are voting for Trump. And that happened at a very high level in 2016, where like the majority of these union households went to Trump, no matter what their leaders said. And that's going to keep happening if we're not careful. I think the difference, in my opinion, the reason in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, Biden is doing a little better than Clinton is that that kind of rank and file union like Joe a little bit better than they like Hillary. And he talked a little bit more about this stuff, but that's where we're losing. You know, I speak to union groups all the time and what my message is welcome in those, in those places, but they don't hear Democrat politicians talking about that, certainly on the national level. Now on the state level, we have a democratic governor again, Andy Bashir, and a big part of that was because he spoke to teachers unions and, and that was a big part of him getting elected. I think we've lost that message. And, and part of the reason I really liked you, I ended up endorsing you, which I had no intention of doing when I saw you. In oh, Iowa. thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. you yeah, yeah. And you got up and said, so I, I, 
you got up and told, so I took my radio show to Iowa. It's a sports radio show, but I wanted to do something get different. So I took them to the Iowa caucuses and we saw every candidate speak. And the three guys who do the show with me don't even care about politics. And I was interested to see what happens at the end of this, who will they be for? And everyone on our show was for you at the end. And the reason was when we saw you speak, you talked about the economic impact on small towns. We saw you in a place called Perry, Iowa. And you got up and said, look, no one speaks about economics in small towns. And you're right, Republicans don't. Now they'll speak about culture and social issues, but they don't talk about the economics because it's their economic policy that's killing small towns. And Democrats act like those places don't even exist. And when you, you spoke about it, and you're right, America is full of small towns, and most people that live in cities started in small towns, and we're just abandoning them. Abandoning them. And, they're, and I don't know, unless we figure that out, we're going to have a place where, you know, there's going to be vast swaths of land where people are just isolated from the economy. And, you know, Dollar General stores started in Kentucky, and I wrote about this in Mitch Please how they go into small towns and basically ruin the communities. They close all the local stores, they create the only place people shop, and the next thing you know, all the money gets shipped out. That's what I worry about across the United States. That's 100% happening right now. And you can see Dollar General and Walmart came and ran over the mom and pops. Uh, and then now Amazon's like a spaceship that's like sucking up <laughs> whatever is left. Uh, and if you're in the small town, it's not just that you're isolated. Like when your way of life starts to degrade, then terrible things start happening. You look around like, you know, you have people who are still living there. And as the opportunities dry up, um, you have people drink more. People um, end up with uh, domestic violence and uh, other problems at higher levels. Or they never marry. They, they, they never um, find a partner because... Getting married, having a child, they're very optimistic acts. Like you, you, you need a degree of stability if you're going to get together with someone and say, hey, let, let's get married. Let's start a family. Let's do all this stuff. Um, and you start kicking out the paths forward for a lot of people. Uh, you see families deteriorate very quickly or never form. Uh, I'm with you that this is the disconnect for the Democratic Party. Uh, like the Democratic Party needs to not content itself with being... Uh, the party of the urban core or of cultural issues. Uh, I, I, there was part of me, Matt, when I was running, I was like, is there some kind of strange agenda where people prefer it if we talk about these cultural issues over the, the uh, bread and butter, the dollars and cents, because they're just making a lot of money off us and they just want to pit us against each other on this bullshit and wh oh, while easy. they're That's laughing all the way to the bank? I mean, if you were to go on Fox News or MSNBC and try to argue about tax policy, you know, I mean, who nobody's going to care, but it is what's most important. I mean, so I live in Kentucky. People still like Trump here. At least a lot of people do. And I will talk to them and they'll say, why don't you like him? And, and, and there are a million reasons. But the thing that bothers me the most were his tax cuts. He basically enacted Mitch McConnell's tax policy, which has a hugely detrimental impact on the poor and the middle class vis-a-vis -vis the wealthy. And people just, and, and it happened and everybody got excited because they got, you know, a check in the mail for, for one time. And it, it, it infuriates me because whatever you want to say about Trump, and there's a lot to say, when he ran, one thing he did I will give him credit for is he looked at these people in blue collar small towns and he said, you know what, your lives are important your problems exist and I'm going to help them. Now he hasn't helped them and he's full of it and he doesn't care about them, but at least he acknowledged them. And we in the democratic party do not acknowledge them way too often. I don't think it's out of maliciousness. I just don't think there are very many Democrats who know about places like this. I mean, there are not too many shared Browns. There just aren't too many of those people left that are winning elections. And so you don't hear voices like mine. When's the last time you heard outside of James Carville, a Southern twang representing the Democratic Party? I don't know. I mean, it just does not happen. And I think that leads to a lot of people, you know, Colin Powell said many years ago about African-Americans, until they can see people represented that look like them in the Republican Party, they're not going to join it. And he was right. Well, what's happening is in small towns, they're not seeing people like them representing the Democratic Party, and it's turning them off. And, and I'm living proof that 
if you speak to folks, they will listen because no one's going to mistake me for, <laughs> you know, like, like someone, um, you know, who, I mean, maybe they would like, I'd appreciate you know it if someone thought you know I was from have? Kentucky. You have, you come off as someone who genuinely cares. And most importantly, you don't come off as someone who thinks they're better. A lot of this is in places like Kentucky, we are worried that you and the rest of the country look down at us. We are worried that you think we're stupid, that you think we don't know how to do anything. And when someone talks to us like that, we turn them off. They're done. Forget it. And I'm not going to call out the politicians that do that, but there are a lot that do. You don't do that. I don't think Joe Biden does that. And I actually think that's why you've seen him do better than some other candidates is simply that. Notice when the Democratic primaries got to the states that are like that, Joe won in a heartbeat. And I think you would have had success for that same reason. You're the only two candidates in the election that I genuinely thought spoke to people in places like this in a way they could connect. Well, I'm so glad that that people sense that I was for them. Uh, and I certainly don't think I'm uh, better than, than anybody. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, I'm fighting for the, the folks in Kentucky and around the country that just look up and say, what the heck happened to, to our country? Like, why does it seem like it, it's uh, getting run for anyone but us at this point? So I, I'm grateful that folks saw that. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Uh, so the Democratic Party, to, to me, and this is one of the things that it's fascinating about your story. So you are one of the most prominent progressives in the state of Kentucky, uh, you've identified the real issues that people care about. People will listen to you because they they sense that you're a different voice. And the Democrats, not being complete morons, were like, "Hey, we should try and recruit him. <laughs> like, we we should recruit this guy to run for office." And you get asked about it every single cycle, which makes sense because you would be one of the most successful prospects that uh, they could possibly field. And you went so far as to attend a, a one of those congressional candidate. Uh, training camps. Um, and after you went through that, you said, you know what, I'm not sure I'm going to run run that cycle. I think it was 16 uh, when they were talking to you. Uh, so tell us about why you took a hard look uh, and what your experience was. Well, so I do a radio show every day and I would argue I am probably one of the only people in the country who is a progressive and an outspoken progressive that speaks to a conservative audience every day. 70%, of, 75% of my audience are Trump voters. And that's because that's the sports audience in Kentucky. And they know I'm a progressive, but they're okay with me because they think, I think they think my heart is in the right place. So in 2016, they called me up to consider running against Andy Barr in the congressional district that represents Lexington, Kentucky. And long story short, they asked me to come to this congressional boot camp where they teach people how to run. And I went there and I was with the 50 to 60 candidates that were in the swing districts that you had to win, the sort of purple districts. And it included a lot of names of people that you would know. 
And they basically did a three-day camp on how you win. And it was the most depressing thing I have ever been a part of because my theory, my thought was, okay, they're going to teach you how to campaign, how to talk about issues. They're going to talk about, you know, what would you, what's a good policy to have on this or that. None of that was a conversation. No one, Andrew, even asked me what I believed on anything ever. I mean, they just thought, well, you could win, so you should come and run. I could have believed any anything in the world and they wouldn't have known they didn't care. They just thought I could win. And at the boot camp, all they taught you, literally all they taught you was how to raise money. The whole thing was about money. A very prominent congressperson stood up and said, let me tell you what doesn't matter. Meeting with voters doesn't matter. Your policies don't matter. What, matter, what matters is how much money can you raise and how do you utilize it? And when I heard her say that, I knew I wasn't going to run because I was like, I'm not going to do this. This is such a terrible part of potentially being in office. And in Congress, especially in the House, you have such little power that they just see you as a number to get to a majority. And I came home and I almost said, you know what, I'm done with politics, period. It was that depressing. Now, I didn't do that, but it really showed me, and I'm sure the Republicans have the same thing. It really showed me that at least at that level, it's not about issues. It's not about anything except raising money and getting the vote to get a majority. I'm the numbers guy, Matt, and they probably told you this at the boot camp, um, but the average successful congressional candidate raises and spends $1.6 million uh, on their campaign. So you have to ask yourself, okay, who the heck can raise $1.6 million for a, a congressional campaign? But that's the, the reason they think the way they do. They're just like, well, let's say you're a great human being. You have great vision. Uh, you know, people really connect with you. But can you get $1.6 million? Uh, and if not, then none of your personal qualities will care. They, they've become very, uh, very mechanical, shall but we say. Do you believe that? I mean, do you believe that? Because I don't. Do you believe that? Do I believe that that the average congressional candidate that succeeds raises $1.6 million? <laughs> let's, let's talk about what happened here in Kentucky during the Senate primary. A, a guy named Charles Booker, who I endorsed and really liked a lot, nearly pulled off one of the most shocking primary upsets ever against Amy McGrath. Amy McGrath raised, she's raised like $50 million for this Senate campaign. At one point, Charles Booker had like $30 in the bank. And... Booker got the spark mostly via social media and the money came after. And I'm sort of of the belief now you need a base money or at least a base presence or a social media, something, but the money for Charles, he would have had, if he had gotten the nomination, he'd had all the money he needed against Mitch McConnell. Anybody. Would. Heck yes. Yeah. But he basically just, once he got the spark and people knew who he was, he raised a lot of money. And if he had, had one more week left in the election, he would have been the nominee and done very well, I think, against McConnell. May not have beaten him, but he'd been close. I don't agree that it should be about who can have the most money because I think Steve Bannon, who I think is a contempt, contemptible person, but he said one thing I think is right, which is I actually think, argue, art, weirdly, money almost matters less now because there are so many ways to get it. And when you get to big races, you'll get it anyway, because people will want you to win. So I, I don't know that I totally agree with that, that like you got to have that 1.6 million or why even do it? I agree with your disagreeing. Uh, and Charles is a great example. Candidates matter. Candidates matter a great deal. Yes, uh, you do. know, it's, it's, it's one of the things that uh, prompted me to run was I thought, you know what, like, I, I think that this message needs to get out there. And I think people will connect with it. And uh, I believe I'll get the resources I need. And I could have lived with myself if I hadn't, you know what I mean? It's not, <laughs> you know, it's not like you could look at it and say, you can't know. That's one of the things about these races, too. And you hit the nail on the head with Charles, like, do, like, if Charles puts himself out there, then he has a chance to get the resources he needs. You know, it's like, can you know that someone ahead of time is going to get the resources? Sure, in some cases, if they're just sitting on a giant pile of money. Uh, but the vast majority of candidates are going to have to put themselves out there and hope that they catch that spark. And then when they do catch that spark, then magical things can happen. Uh, and those are the things that make the DC establishment uh, look up and be like, oh, I did not see that coming.
This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN.com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. Uh, so Amy McGrath, I believe, had tens of millions of dollars for the primary. She was already spending money on TV ads and the rest of it. No one expected Charles to... Um, challenge her seriously. And then it became very serious where, where he almost took the uh, nomination and she squeaked it out. And then now Charles and everyone's behind her because you got to try and beat Mitch. Um, but it seems like she is not as close as you'd hope. Uh, last thing I saw, I had her down like nine or 10 points. So why is it that people in Kentucky are not excited about Amy? To, and I, you know, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but you know, like, I, I don't know if you agree with the fact that people aren't excited. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't want to be negative towards Amy because I think she is a good person, but I, I, she's going to lose by 20. I, 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 I really believe that 15 to 20. And Mitch, please, I wrote about, I actually was thinking about that race seriously. I mean, not just kind of thinking about it. I, I went into it. I did polling. I put my own personal money into looking at it. And I detail pretty, you know, specifically how it is that candidates end up not running. And this is no offense to Amy McGrath, but my race is an example. So I was considering running and Chuck Schumer and the DSCC decided Amy McGrath's going to be our candidate. And what that was meaning was I could not even get people, Andrew, to work for me. There are nine polling uh Democratic polling sources, and none of them would take me because the DSCC told them, if you work for him, you can't work for any of our candidates. I couldn't find anyone to even help me. The only people that would help me were these sort of rogue progressives who were very nice, but also didn't want me to tell anybody they were working for me because they were worried that Schumer and those people would get mad at him. Schumer basically put a, if you help him, and now when I say Schumer, it was the DSCC CC, specifically. Yeah. If you work for him, you can't do anything for us. So there was a major Democratic Party donor here in Kentucky and one of the biggest national donors who liked, who thought I was the best candidate and basically went to Schumer and said, look, you got to give this guy a chance. And only because of that did he agree to meet with me. And I talked specifically about what happened in that meeting. It was a fine meeting. He brought me up. I spent a couple hours with him. He agreed to finally like take his hand off the button and let me recruit people. But he told me flat out, I don't think anybody can beat Mitch McConnell. We're for Amy McGrath because we know she can raise money and it will keep Mitch distracted. That's ex he told me that flat out. And I said, I think you're wrong. Someone can beat him. And he said, well, if you want to try, go for it. But their whole thing was just to get someone who could raise money. And they knew that Amy McGrath was a money raising machine. They just gave up on Kentucky before it even started, and it was infuriating. I ended up not doing it, but I have to tell you, Andrew, I almost did it just to, just to prove them wrong, you know. But Charles is a perfect example. Charles, and there's polling, private polling that suggests this, Charles would have made this a much closer race. 
But Chuck Schumer didn't care about it being a close race. He cared about the money being raised, and that's the problem. That is very tough to hear uh, because there are so many missed opportunities, really. Uh, Amy's background, um, I mean, she obviously is a very impressive personal and uh, military background. And she'd raised a ton of money in an earlier race. Um, so what, were those the reasons why Chuck looked up or the DSCC looked up and said, okay, um, we're going to get behind Amy because she'd, she like how much did she raise in her previous race? Well, on paper, she's a perfect candidate. Military veteran, uh, very smart, engaging, et cetera. But races are not run on paper. She raised a lot of money in 2018 in a midterm, partially because she put out one of the best television commercials you'll ever see, which was her first commercial, which went viral, and she raised a ton of money. But I think this is important. She lost. And she lost when the polls said that she was going to win. She way underperformed expectations. But it was like nobody even cared. They just sort of moved past that and said, well, you know, still, she's the best candidate. I think what you get is when you have people from Washington, D.C. saying what they believe people in Kentucky will like, they're going to screw it up. I mean, what do they know? They're not in Kentucky. If you had been here in 2018, and I say this with no offense to Amy McGrath, who I think is, you know, a good person and, and, and a military hero. But if you had been here in 2018, you would know that she could not beat Mitch McConnell and that putting her in the race in Kentucky was a terrible mistake. You would just know that. But I don't think anybody in Kentucky was ever even consulted. The question was just, who did, who did Chuck Schumer want? And when Chuck Schumer wanted them, they win. And I think there are other examples around the country of that. It is very difficult in a primary to beat the establishment pick. So, and then the field gets weighted because she raised so much money. She raised like $8 million her first two weeks in the campaign. Well, Andrew, how am I supposed to compete in a primary against somebody that has $8 million? When and then when they tell big donors, don't give him money, where am I supposed to get any money? You know, Charles Booker, if it was not for the Black Lives Matter protest, he may have never even gotten sort of noticed, but he did because he was such a great leader during that time period. But before that, she just had so much money, it was impossible. And that was all done by the National Party. And this is a missed opportunity. I'm not going to lie. It would have been hard to beat Mitch McConnell. It would not have been easy. You would have had to run a perfect race, especially with Trump on the ballot. If he wasn't on the ballot, it's different. But, but it was possible. And they picked a candidate that made it impossible. And I think, and I, I, I don't say this hopeful because I'm going to vote for her and I hope she wins. I think she will lose by an amount that will really surprise people. This is really the difference between making a calculation based on numbers and humanity, where if you're at some dashboard in DC and you look up uh, and you think, okay, this is a race where uh, we don't expect to win because we haven't been competitive in that area. So I'm going to make a resource decision. Uh, and what comes to mind for me is sometimes what you want to do is you want to make a more high variance human decision, which is like, okay, th this person, uh, there's a great chance that they never get lift off and they, they lose terribly, but there's at least some upside here where like I can project that they uh, actually inspire people and lead people in, in a tremendous way. And you can get a sense of that from spending time with someone. Like if you have a particular lens, like I, I've spoken to Charles multiple times and at length, and it does not take that long to think, wow, this is like a really great human being. Like he, you know, he, he has like the makings of, of, of a uh, real uh, leader that would galvanize people. I've spoken to you now during this period and we met in Iowa and I remember that. Uh, and given who you are and your audience uh, and the fact that you communicate for a living, uh, and you understand the community and you've got a background that a lot of people respect and you care about things that other people care about and in, in like the rest of you can connect with people on multiple levels. Um, you are a tremendous upside pick, uh, you know, like the fact that at least they were talking to you about it means that, you know, again, they're not um, uh, totally um, with their heads in the sand. Um, but that's the kind of thing you would do is you would choose like high variance humans and say, OK, like this person has a chance to. Uh, take off in a way that 
would inspire people. That that would be the the other way of doing it as opposed to um, looking at it as numbers on a ledger. I like everything you said there. I'll give you an analogy for sports because that's what I do most of the time. So the SEC is the best for football. And many years ago, Kentucky had been terrible at football for like 30 straight years. And CM Newton, the athletic director, said, we can keep trying to do it the same way and hire the same coaches they do, but we never win. We, used to, we hired Alabama's former coach, and he lost terribly because we're not Alabama. So he decided, let me try something completely different. So he went and hired a Division II coach named Hal Mummy from Valdosta, Georgia, who came up here and decided, I'm going to do things completely different. I'm going to throw every pass. We're not going to run the ball. We're just going to air it out. He created something called the air raid. Came to Kentucky, and they won a lot of games here. And that offense that he created is now the most popular offense in college football. Mike Leach has had success with it. There are guys in the NFL using it. It started at Kentucky because they didn't think they had any chance and they were going to try something crazy different to see if it would work. That's exactly what you're talking about. I mean, Kentucky in Senate races is about like Kentucky in football was back then, which is a long shot. And why wouldn't you try something different? I mean, What's better, spend $50 million and lose by 12 or try something different, maybe lose by 30 or maybe pull off an upset? And I would argue it's a lot better to do the latter. I think the National Party sees the former as better because it's safer and parties don't like to take, take chances. And the Republican Party, by the way, is better at this than us. Because starting really with the Tea Party, they've kind of said, you know what, primaries, have at it, and whoever comes out, we'll support them. We don't do that. And I think sometimes that leads to candidates that just don't inspire anyone. I can relate to this from my experience as a presidential candidate where I went around and I, I was uh, running. And the more DC you were, the less you thought that I had any business running, <laughs> really. Uh, and, and then um, as I would outperform DC candidates, we, we were joking that like, it's all fun and games until Andrew Yang passes you in the polls. Uh, and I became <laughs> like the grim reaper of candidates where as soon as I passed you, then like bad things started happening to your campaign. Um, so so that, that was the, the conventional wisdom being thrown on its ear. In the same way you're describing, it's like, you know, you, you look at, uh, some of these sports programs like, oh, I'll try something different. Like Andrew Yang was definitely something different. Uh, and that there were a lot of people that were surprised by, by our relative success. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. We succeeded in part because folks are... Fed up. They're looking around and saying business as usual is not working. Certainly politics as usual is not working. Uh, and I would love to talk to you about what we can do to build a better Democratic Party uh, or whether you think that there is a third party that's necessary uh, or if, if the Democratic Party is just not um, like not connecting with people in the right way. And I want to segue into this with um, with a, a book called The Righteous Mind. Have you, have you read this book by Jonathan Haidt? I don't think so. No, it, it's OK if you haven't. But I think you would love it, Matt, because it's right up your alley. Um, so he identifies six pillars of morality, uh, essentially, that make us tick as human beings, uh, even across cultures and civilizations. And he said he said that uh, Democrats are good at arguing about three of them and Republicans are good at arguing about all six. 
Uh, and so that there are certain people that just don't feel like Democrats are talking to them and we're, we're having a hard time connecting. Um, and so if this sounds interesting to, to, to you, like I, I highly recommend it. He's a very, very smart guy. He's a, a professor at NYU. Um, but the six pillars, and I might get this wrong, are uh, caring, fairness, liberty, authority, loyalty, and sanctity. And the Democrats are good on the first three. They'll, 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 they'll argue for caring and be like, oh, how can you do this terrible thing? And like, you know, like people, people matter and people are people. Um, and fairness saying like, oh, you know, these people are not being treated right. Uh, liberty, it gets interpreted differently, but it's like liberty versus oppression. Um, and so that there are ways that Democrats argue for liberty from, let's call it, you know, lack of health care or something along those lines. Um, uh, but then on the the fourth, fifth, and sixth, uh, loyalty, authority, and sanctity, the Democrats just don't touch them, really. <laughs> they look up and be like, well, those aren't things that... But it turns out that a lot of human beings uh, and a lot of Republicans also care about authority, loyalty, and sanctity. Uh, and, and so you end up with different cultural conversations taking place. And the, the trap for Democrats, in my mind, is that they act like, well, if you don't get the message, then that's your fault. Like, there's something wrong with you because there's nothing wrong with our message. Our message is great. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, I haven't read the book, but I totally see that point. I, I always make a joke. There's nothing worse than being in a meeting with a group of liberals because nobody likes to take charge because they don't want to ever say someone is, you know, on a higher plane than somebody else. That's kind of the authority thing. But it's true. And I... There is a, I think there's a real problem, not just with looking at things differently, but like what you just said, Andrew, which is, I think too many Democrats think if you don't look at these issues the way I do, you're a worse person. And a perfect example is just talking about Trump supporters in general. There's a lot of people that are Democrats that believe if you support Trump, you're a bad person, period. They don't even want to hear anything else. And I say all the time, I understand why people support Trump. I disagree with them but I understand it. I, I get what drives them. And I don't think they're bad because of that. As a matter of fact, some of what they, that leads them to believe it, I agree with. I just don't agree with projecting it onto Trump. Religion, I think, is where Democrats really screw up. I mean, we're very, we're, we are good as Democrats in protecting freedom of religion for oppressed or minority religions. We're good at that. But we don't like to talk about the majority religion. We don't like to talk about Christianity. We just don't like to talk about it. I mean, people feel weird talking about it. They almost feel like that it's it, it it's not even worth acknowledging. A lot of, I find it strange, some politicians won't, Joe Biden talks about his Catholicism, but a lot of, you know, I just, a lot of politicians don't seem like they want to talk about it. Religion is at the core part of a lot of small town life. When I was a kid, I didn't know anybody that didn't go to church. And I feel like we look at that, too many of us look at it, not in a negative way, but just in a, uh, that's just not something that should be part of public discourse. When for many religious people, it's the core feature of their life. Sanctity. Yeah. The Democrats don't like to talk about sanctity. It's how they look at everything. George W. Bush, and this was very smart, but I also think this is how he was. He would, in speeches, put lines from hymns and Bible verses, just put them in. He wouldn't say this is from Romans or this is from, you know, victory in Jesus. He would just put them in and everybody listening who was a Christian was like, oh, I know that. See, he's with us. And, but most Democrats probably didn't even know what had happened, <laughs> you know, and I, I always really respected that because he was, it wasn't like some secret code. It was this is a part of who I am. It comes through in everything I do. I'm a very religious person, okay? My religion leads me to believe we should treat those less fortunate than us with respect, dignity, and help them. It's why I'm a Democrat. And when I say that the reason I'm a Democrat is because I am religious, a lot of people just don't get that. Even Republicans don't get it. But to me, it's a core feature of who I am. And I agree with you that sometimes it feels like on the left, we don't want to talk about how these things like, and I'm using the example of religion, can be a core feature because it's just not something we're comfortable with discussing. Yeah. Um, 
there's something so important in what you just described about uh, the a-religiosity of a lot of democratic um, uh, communication. Uh, and there, there's so many things to, to me that just Americans share in common. I, I confess when I was running, it was so interesting, Matt. Like I'd show up and I would just talk the way I talk uh, and use the words I, I used. And and it, people sensed that it was a different conversation than was being had because just like there is kind of a Republican or religious set of uh, cues or code words, like there were a, a set of Democratic and liberal code words uh, and I would get up there and I'd give a talk and I wasn't using the code words. And so people weren't sure when to applaud. <laughs> it was like a whole punch list. It's like, we're going to fight for this. And I was like, yay, we're going to fight for that. Yay. And I was like, huh, like I didn't say any of that uh, because, you know, it, <laughs> like, it, it wasn't, uh, it was, it, you know, it wasn't something that I'd, I'd rehearsed or planned. Uh, and, I, and so we ended up reaching different sets of people and having a different conversation. All of this was accidental, by the way. Like, none of this was planned. I just would show up to an event and be like, hey, here, here's my, <laughs> here's, like, here's my, my talk. Here's my stump speech. Uh, so what can we do to either help overhaul the Democratic Party's openness uh, to some of these modes of communications and values that they aren't talking about? Um, or, and... Uh, you know that, and I raised it before. It's like, do you think that uh, third party is either necessary or helpful uh, if the Democratic Party um, does not shift or evolve in some way on the way it talks to people? I'm always skeptical about third parties because too often third parties just become a hodgepodge of people who don't agree on anything except there just needs to be a third party, and you end up with like sort of just craziness. I mean, if there was, I think for there ever to be a third party, it probably has to be based around an individual as bad as that sounds, but I think it probably does, who puts forth a set of ideals and says, I'm stepping away and then people gravitate to them, but that's going to have to be a really popular person to do that. And I don't know who could do that. But to your, to your first question about how do you fix it? You know, there were pictures, there are pictures sometimes from the Trump administration where the, he'll have like his cabinet or his advisors and you'll look and it will be a room full of white men. You know, there'll be 50 people in it and it's 47 white men. And I think to myself, how in the world can you believe you can govern America when the only people you're hearing from are white men? Like that's absolute insanity. But I also think on the Democratic side, sometimes we are, well, we are very good at inclusion of many different types of people, whether it be ethnic, religious, whatever. But we forget just thinking differences, like just the way you think about things that is not based on a demographic choice, but just, yes. on, a, just on, a, on a way you look at the world. And there's not an acceptance of a certain form of diversity. Uh, you yes, know what I mean? It's, there's it's, like, there's like, not, there's prizing of one form of diversity. No, it's not racial. Uh, you know, so that this is me going to the book again, which now I'm, I'm like, I'm really like, you know, beating it very, very hard. Uh, but one of the things that uh, Jonathan Haidt's research indicates is that that there are some genetic traits we have that actually correspond to political orientation. Um, so he identifies two. One is appetite for novelty. Like, do you just like new stuff? Yeah. Uh, and two is something called a disgust reflex, which is if I show you like some, you know, something gross, like, you know, garbage or like, you know, like, like the, the rest of it, like, do you react adversely? And these two things actually are genetic. Like, you know, you're sort of born with with like an appetite for novelty or a disgust reflex uh, at a certain level. And then um, they actually correspond also to to whether you're conservative or not. Like it turns out if you have a very uh, like high appetite for novelty, then you tend to be more liberal. And if you have a very high disgust reflex, you tend to be more conservative. <laughs> and, and so to, to, to me, like the, the pillar of liberal thought is I should not be mad at you about, for something you, that you have nothing to do with. Like you did not choose. You're like born with, with that. Uh, and so most of the time people think of that as gender, race, sexual orientation, like something heritable. You're like, oh, I should not be upset at you about obviously, you know, like uh, uh, the fact that um, you were 
born, uh, you know, with a particular trait. But then if you map political ideology as being related to heritable traits that you also have no control over, then all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, I, I can't get mad at you for voting for Trump either because <laughs> like that, that, that's something it's interesting. I hadn't um, thought about it like that. Uh, earlier, Matt, you said something about how you understand why people voted for Trump. Here's like the single biggest thing that I uh, I have family members who voted for Trump. Like, I, you know, I do not think Trump voters are bad people. Uh, and one of the reasons why I think a lot of people voted for Trump is they looked up and said, government's not working. You know, we need something different. Uh, this person is going to shake things up. And I do not find that to be an irrational or unreasonable sentiment. You know, you can look up and legitimately say, I do not think DC is working for the people, for, for me and the rest of it. I agree Trump was the wrong guy and, you know, he's um, as or more corrupt. Um, but but one of the problems that I'm seeing is that that institutional mistrust is rising across all groups. But the institutional mistrust is higher among Republicans and independents than it is Democrats, whereas Democrats are still like, no, government works, government works, we can just make it work. And then the rest of America is completely losing confidence in that. We're like, is this really working? <laughs> and, and Trump capitalized on that. Um, uh, and so th this to me is one of the big challenges that we have to have Democrats embrace, which is like, look, if you're going to argue for government, we really have to get it working for people at a much higher level. Like not in just in a talking point level, but in a like I'm actually making a difference in your life level that in a way that you can feel and trust and will actually change your mindset or attitude around it. It's one reason why I was for universal basic income so strongly is because that we could do and you would feel it. Yeah. And I, I think that's important. But I will say this. You can you can give people changes in their lives. And if you don't do it in a way that reflects the value in them as humans, it won't work. So let's use Obamacare. Obamacare is extremely popular in Kentucky, so long as you don't call it Obamacare. You have to call it the ACA because in Kentucky, we got it through our governor at the time, sort of uh, accepted the Medicaid expansion when no other uh, when no other states like ours did, and now it's very popular. But people don't really give credit to Obama for it because they don't give credit to Democrats for it because they're still stuck on this idea that Democrats somehow don't think we're equal to them. And I wanna go back to what you said a minute ago about traits, because I think a lot of it is traits. I think a lot of people in rural areas believe, and I, I'm not saying this is fair, but I understand why they believe it, that liberals are too judgmental, just in general about things. That like, everyone has to be perfect to liberals, and if you're not, they'll yell at you all the time. And I'll give you an example that just happened around, around here in Kentucky. There was a person who was a, a sort of a social media figure that everyone in Kentucky knew, which is weird, but they did. He had a pseudonym and he passed away. And when he passed away, you know, I knew him. He said a lot of things when he was alive I wish he hadn't said. He, he, was, he was not perfect. But I said, I'm very sorry to hear he died. Prayers to his family. You know, just the things you say as a human being. I yeah. got shouted down by liberals all over the country, like it, Democratic advisors who said, see, this is why you couldn't have had him as the Senate candidate. He's giving, you know, rest in peace wishes to a person who said bad things. Well, I didn't like that he said bad things. I wish he hadn't, but he died and he had two children and a wife, or, or excuse me, three children and a wife. And if you can't show humanity at that moment, then all these people just look at that and go, he's got three daughters. You can't say rest in peace when he has three daughters without getting screamed at. I think a lot of folks in rural areas just feel like that they're constantly judged and it becomes like, it becomes very difficult for them to accept the other things that Democrats try to do that are very positive for them. And I, I wish we could, again, this goes back to my Christianity. We're all sinners. No one yes. is perfect. Everyone yes. makes mistakes. Now, some mistakes are worse than others, but none of us are perfect human beings. Let's have grace. Let's forgive people. Let's let people redeem themselves. And I think we're bad at that as liberals, especially in recent years. And I wish we could get past that.
Uh, the word I've used, Matt, is patronizing. There's something patronizing about a lot of the Democratic Party. Uh, and it's very alienating. And we should very much stop it if we can. Uh, there are two things that have made it much, much worse in recent years. And that's the polarization of media and then social media. Uh, because now in social media, you, you end up with very, very negative uh, sentiments that get amplified very quickly. Uh, and it, it's it's bad for all of us. Um, it's tearing us apart. It's making it impossible for us to come together on some of the big solutions. Um, but I agree with you. We have to deliver value and we have to deliver value to, to people in a way that they'll appreciate and like and understand uh, it is funny that names matter a great deal, where if you called it Obamacare, people would dislike it, and then you called it something else. What did they end up calling The Affordable Care Act. It sounds like that, that, that one's okay. <laughs> they called it uh, Kentucky Connect. They called it the, the governor at the time, who was, who was the current governor's dad, Steve Bashir, called it Kentucky Connect. And people, if you ask people today, do you like Kentucky Connect, they'll say yes. And then you can say, do you like Obamacare? And they'll say no, because they think they're two different things, because the folks that ran Kentucky knew we need to market this in a way people will sign up for it. And in order to do that, we have to make them think they're signing up for a Kentucky thing. But let me say this too. I don't want people listening to this. Just think, well, Matt, why we say all these criticisms of Democrat? Well, why aren't you just a Republican in terms of ideas? I think the ideas of the Democrat, I don't think that at all. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been, I've been right here with you, uh, you know, and I think everyone knows like, <laughs> so go ahead. Sorry. But like, I, I think everything we just said is like said with love and, you know, like, uh, and brotherhood. In terms of ideas, I think the Democrats are in the right place on most issues, not all, but most. And that's what I care about is ideas. But the reality is politics is about people. And I come at this as a radio show host. You, I cannot get 75% of my audience is Trump voters. I can't get them to listen to me if they think I am patronizing all that stuff. I mean, my book got to the New York Times bestseller list and, and basically was bought primarily by Kentuckians. And honestly, primarily a lot by conservative Kentuckians who bought a book against Mitch McConnell because they wanted to hear what I had to say about the state and politics. And we can do that in other places with other candidates, but there needs to be a lesson. I mean, after Trump won, there was all this talk. Well, how do we reach Trump voters? And I would read all of that and it was all just garbage. It was nonsense. And I like J.D. Vance as a person. He's a nice guy, but they read Hillbilly Elegy and they thought they were all experts. And, I, and it was like, look, you asked me a little while ago, how do we fix this? Bring more people into the conversation. Look at the places where you want to have success and where you've lost. Because here's the thing about Kentucky. We are the reason Trump won Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Those states, the parts that he won are just like Kentucky. The only difference between those states and Kentucky is we don't have Philadelphia, Milwaukee, Detroit to offset it. But the rural parts of Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania are just like in Ohio are just like Kentucky. And if you wanna know why Trump won all those places, look at Kentucky, because it's, it's the same issues that were problems here, were problems there. And whether we win in 2020 or not, and I think we will, it'll be, even if we pick up Texas and Georgia down the road, if we lose Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, it's still gonna be hard for us. Those are states that we have to keep winning. And to do that, you've gotta find a way to reach the people I'm talking about. People should be calling you nonstop, Matt, because I think what you have to offer is so crucial. Uh, and we can fight for a lot of the same policies and ideas and just frame them in ways that people find more interesting and appealing. Well, you did that. I mean, let's be honest. You did that, right? Now, you came out in a campaign and you talked about universal basic income. And when I first heard about that, I thought, boy, that's ridiculous. And then I went and heard you speak. And I went, well, you know what? That makes sense. And then six months later, the whole country agreed to it and nobody dissented. Now they did it temporarily, but the idea of it was exactly the same. And I remember thinking, if everybody had just gone to Perry, Iowa, when I did and heard Andrew talk, they would have seen that that's not a crazy idea. You're a perfect example. You took a policy that on its face, even I would have been like, come on. 
and you explained it in a way that made people go, well, now wait a minute. And I think there has to be a lot more of that in order for us to compete as well as the stuff I'm talking about. And we were not afraid to name it the freedom dividend. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, like that's what I want. It's like, uh, because we tested a bunch of names and it turns out that so progressives and liberals liked it at a certain level, no matter what we called it. We called it social security for all, prosperity dividend, opportunity dividend, and our approval ratings were more or less constant. Uh, people who were more conservative did not like it until we called it the freedom dividend. Then all of a sudden the approval shot up. Then call it the freedom <laughs> dividend. Don't, don't not call it that because you somehow don't like the word freedom. Call it freedom. What do I care? It's still the same twelve hundred dollars. Like that's 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 what you do. You said something a exactly. minute ago that I meant I meant to bring up when you said it. But you were talking about the importance of family. You're talking about in small towns. People won't get married and have children, et cetera, in small towns. Like in 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 rural places, family is huge. And like it's not bad for us as Democrats to say, you know what? two parent households that have a kid, that's good. Like it's not a bad thing. Like that doesn't, it doesn't make it awful, but that's Republicans talk about that. Democrats shy away from it. I, why? I don't understand why we why? do that. I mean, there is, there is very clear, compelling data that two parent households having a kid, you end up with better chances of certain positive outcomes. So if you're uh, a, society you look up and say okay like we should probably encourage that because by the numbers that's like a, a better shot at some things we like um so democrats shying away from that is counterproductive in my mind like, like who does not have a family who does not care about family you know probably like zero of us i mean we all came from somewhere so th th these are things that i agree with you that um democrats have sort of talked themselves out of talking about family faith values that we can all agree on, loyalty, authority. You know, one thing that, that I'll, I'll share with you, it's like, uh, this, this may be kind of small, but you know that, that song like, uh, I'm proud to be an American because yes. at least I know I'm free. Yes. And, 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 and so, so I, you know, like the RNC, they play that song and I tweeted, I was like, oh, I like this song. And then people were like, oh, they ruined it for me and whatnot. What and like re Republicans do something very um, very fundamental that Democrats need to contest them on, which is that they claim, uh, they claim the word America, they claim the American flag, they like do all this stuff. And then Democrats sometimes look up and are like, oh, like, uh, you know, you, you can't um, bust out like the, the flat out patriot patriotic language or uh, I mean, it's like, of course we should, you know, it's like, what are you going to do? <laughs> you know, it's, it's our country. It's like, you know, that like, song you're talking about, the listeners to my show will will laugh that you said that because I joke about how I don't like that song because but when oh, I was funny. a kid when I was a kid <laughs> they played that song Andrew every morning after we did the pledge of allegiance at school every morning they played that song and that was every like there are tons of places in Kentucky that listen to that I'm proud to be an American every morning in, as as a, as in school I think sometimes, now not always, but I think sometimes Democrats are scared to look patriotic because it almost seems lame to be patriotic. Like waving a flag is like, well, I think there are problems with America. So if I wave a flag, I act like it's perfect. No, you don't. You're just happy. Like you're, there's nothing wrong with being proud to be an American or proud to be a Christian or proud to be Jewish or Muslim or whatever. Yeah. But I, I do think that like there are parts of this that we've run away from. So when you go back to the first question, how do you talk to these people? You have to tell them that their lives have value and that their opinions have value, even if you disagree with it. Abortion is, I don't talk about abortion ever, but I will say, if you're pro-life, I understand. Like it doesn't yes. make you a bad human being. It doesn't mean you want to enslave women and make, it just means you may look at this differently than the pro-choice people look at it. And I wish we could do that more on issues because if we did, I think we'd have a whole lot better chance of connecting with people who then we've got to win over. At the end of the day, you can be self-righteous all you want. If we don't get 50.01% of the vote, who cares? Like, I mean, how self-righteous, how'd that work out for you? Yeah, we, we need to get our 51% plus or 50.1% plus. 
But then if we're going to solve some of these problems, we need to get a bigger consensus than that. And even the people who disagree with us, they have to know that we care about them. We value them. We listen to them so that we can come together and, and say, okay, uh, don't agree on this or that, but here, here's the direction we're going to go. And then people will still be able to live together uh, and hopefully prosper together. I mean, it seems like a very, um, very distant ambition now for us to prosper and flourish, but we, we still have a chance at it. You know, I should know this, Matt, but are you a parent yourself? No, I'm, uh, I'm not. I haven't gotten there yet in life, but, <laughs> but one day. Oh, well, I mean, you strike me as a very eminent, um, eminent bachelor then. <laughs> I have a girlfriend. I have a girlfriend. She's actually a TV producer in, uh, in New York and a wonderful, wonderful woman. But I, so, so yes, I, but I am not a parent yet, but I agree with you in terms of you building a consensus. I'll tell you what's interesting about Joe Biden to me. A lot of liberals still can't believe Joe Biden's the nominee. I'll be honest with you, Andrew. I always thought he was going to win. I even thought he was going to win when he lost Iowa and New Hampshire because People forget about just the folks not on social media and they forget apparent in Democratic primaries about African-Americans. They get forgotten in the early Democratic primary states. But read polls that come out where they talk about traits and look how high Joe Biden always scores in cares about people like me. He doesn't score high in a lot of stuff. But even with Republicans, he will score surprisingly high in cares about people like me. And I think the reason that Joe Biden ended up winning the primary, he's going to win the general election, I think. And I think that Republicans don't hate him as much as they have other candidates is they genuinely believe most people that he cares about them. And that is a very effective trait for politics. I agree on all fronts, and I am thrilled to see what the future holds for you, Matt. Uh, I think you are uh, just what the party needs, just what Kentucky needs, just what the country needs. People should be going to you much more than they, they are. Hopefully, this conversation helps push the Democratic Party in a particular direction. And hope, at some point, hopefully, they manage to talk you into running, because you would have been a really, really fun, awesome um, candidate against Mitch, certainly if you'd gotten through the primary uh, congressional candidate last cycle, I'm sure they'll they'll stay after you. But if you do run, you'll have my support because I would love to see you making your case in Kentucky uh, and then going all the way to D.C. and talking sense to more people there. So thank you and looking forward to seeing what the future holds. And thank you. And when this pandemic ends or slows down, I want you, I, I, I want you to come to Kentucky and, and do a speech or something and let me kind of show you around because I do think your message plays here in a way. I think people thought of you as a person that would play in cities. I think your strength is going to be in small towns. And I hope you will, I hope you'll get, do some of that when, when things open up a little bit. I would love that. Yeah, let's make it happen post-pandemic. It'll be one more thing to look forward to. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs>